0: What's up, I'm Beyonce. Yeah, this is Big Snoop D-O-double G. Hi, this is Kelly Clarkson. Stick around for more Conversations with Allison J. The Journey to Here, brought to you by Ethel May Books. Hello and welcome to another episode of Conversations with Allison J, The Journey to Hear. I'm Allison J. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the channel, like, and share. Today we'll be speaking to Dr. Danny Gordon of Resilience Medicine. Dr. Gordon is the founder of Resilience Clinic. She's a double certified board medical doctor, author and world leading expert in integrative and cannabinoid, yes cannabis as in the legal kind, for medical use medicine. She has over 10 years expertise treating thousands of patients first in North America and then in the UK with stress-related illnesses, burnout, women's health issues, chronic fatigue, and mental health conditions to help them dramatically improve the quality of life, energy, resilience, and well-being when drugs alone just didn't work. She was the youngest physician to become American board certified in integrative medicine, the newest U.S. physician subspecialty. She trained the UK's first cannabis medicine physicians and speaks internationally on cannabis and integrative medicine. She has lectured at Imperial College, King's College and University College London and spoken at the UN. She is a founding member and current vice chair of the UK Medical Cannabis Clinician Society, MCCS, and a member of the Conservative Drug Policy Reform Group and Drugs Science Cannabis Working Group. Dr. Gordon offers simple, practical and positive takeaways that can be used to help her patients get more resilient, more energy, improve their mental well-being and flourish. Dr. Gordon, <laughs> first of all, thank you so much for joining me here on Conversations with Alison Jay, The Journey to Here. I really appreciate okay. you taking the time to inform and educate us, because um, for those of us from the generation where cannabis, weed, marijuana, ganja, whatever other name it was actually ever known by, was illegal. And there was so much stigma and negative connotations attached to the use of it because it was seen as if you start with marijuana, then that's the gateway to all the other hard drugs, wasn't it? But now in many states in the US, it's legal and sold in many different forms. Who would have known that the thing that went people smoking now sold in the form of oils and gummies. Now I know that um, back in the Caribbean islands, outside of smoking um, marijuana, people actually used to use it as a green in their salads and make it as a tea. But, um, yeah. but we only ever heard of the negative smoking it and getting high, right? I've never heard of any of the medicinal qualities. So can you please tell us, if any, what the differences are between, between the once illegal cannabis and what is now legally available? Sure. Well, I think that was a great introduction into sort of, you know, the
1: background where we've come with cannabis um, as a plan. I prefer to call it cannabis because a lot of those other terms, you know, they have really negative connotations, like you mentioned. Um, and this all started, I, I should say, I grew up in the southern United States. So I grew up in the war on drugs era. So I was terrified of drugs, of cannabis growing up. Um and then I went to medical school and it was more of the same thing. So I had to, to really decondition a lot of these things myself with scientific inquiry. Um, and one of the things that we have to remember about cannabis is cannabis, as you said, it was a medicinal plant in many cultures um, used in many different, many different forms. Um, and the kind of smear campaign against cannabis became um really a big thing in the 1920s in the US. It was actually a very racist campaign. It was a non-scientifically based campaign and it was all to do with politics and getting funding for the um, very newly formed um, narcotics division of the US government. So this is where it all came from.
0: Okay.
1: then, you know, over the years, um, there was a series of events that happened. Um, there was a film, a famous film that was actually made as a government propaganda film called of Madness, and it actually depicted people of color um, doing crimes when, when they smoked cannabis. And it was, it, it, you know, if, if, if you can still see it on YouTube. It's absolutely incredible how terrible and racist and, you know, um, completely unscientific basis is. But this is what was fed out to the public in the early 1900s and um it was done basically because they wanted to tax cannabis first of all they didn't want everyone using it and then they eventually went on to criminalize cannabis use so i mean this is the background we have to remember this is the background of of cannabis use in the US and only recently have we been able to recover um the you know the reputation of this plant through medical research being allowed again and um Thankfully, things are moving forward. Um, so what the difference is, you know what I think it's important to have that background because you know cannabis, the cannabis plant is the cannabis plant. Yes, um, illegally, of course, when it went to the black market, you were having um, a lot of people involved in, you know, illegal activities, selling cannabis, not just cannabis, but other drugs. And it was actually um, putting up people at risk buying cannabis. And they were getting really the really high THC cannabis that was really bred over the years to make you get high. So. Those are some of the differences versus um, now it's on the legal market for, well, for medical uses, we tend to use lower amounts of THC. But there's still those high levels of THC cannabis on the market for adult use in legal states. So I think it's important to to point this out because, you know, now we're saying Everyone should have, at least in legal states, people should have the choice. I should have the choice if they want to use cannabis, just like people have the choice if they want to drink a glass of wine or have a, um, you know, a, a shot of bourbon or whatever it is. Um, so a lot of this differential was actually um, from this, you know, very um, racist campaign that went on for years and years. Um, so I think that's a really important
0: place to start. Uh, thank you for that, because I'm sure there's a lot of people that didn't know that. and if you if we think about it so many things in life are political aren't they and whether what has shaped and formed our opinions of certain things we don't know where it comes from because if you if you look at it and think about it you and i went around in the within the 1900s when when this campaign first came out so unless we dig deep and do our research we're not going to know and being so i was born and raised in in london so it's one of those things yeah. where you've always heard it—that yeah. weed, marijuana. I I remember when I first saw the, the the word marijuana, I didn't even know how to pronounce it. I, mean, I just knew I was just familiar with ganja and weed. Yeah, and yeah, the, the
1: and that's it. And yeah. it, the legacy—it's the legacy—and that's mm. it. In this the, the campaign from the U.S., you know, against cannabis, it bled over into the United Kingdom. So. The in, in the United Kingdom, cannabis tincture was on the formulary as a medicine until 1971. And it was struck off in 1971 because of this kind of trickle-down effect from what was going on for so many years in the US, um, in the prohibition era as, as you know, as we like to call it in, in, in med in medicine. So I think it is so fascinating that this is what's happened. And it really didn't have anything to do with science because they actually did a big scientific report in the 40s um, and New York, uh, the New York state did a big report on cannabis and New- uh, actually New York University. And they found um, in the NYU report, this is back in the 40s, mm. that cannabis did not cause people to go insane and commit murder and all these terrible crimes. They actually found it was actually quite a safe substance relatively speaking, you know, compared mm. to alcohol and other things. But they decided to bury that report actually and continue on with this quite unscientific smear campaign so it's just it's totally fascinating
0: It's and it's like you said you they buried it and what's come out has not is based on basically just a smear campaign as in as opposed to scientific research as the same right. could be said for so many other things as <laughs> interestingly enough last Wednesday I was buying some fish so you have the strangest conversations in the strangest places right <laughs> and um The man behind the counter, so I was buying some wild caught fish and he's like, why don't you get this one? It's more meatier and it's better. And it was farm raised.
1: So I remember
0: I was saying to him, because I would rather eat something that's natural, that's in its own habitat and environment than something that is raised that I don't know what kind of synthetic things it was they but that fish was being fed and so on and so forth and I was saying to him that um there's no money in all of us being well there's no money in those of us that have come from ancestries where We are given natural ingredients, natural remedies when we're feeling unwell. So, for example, my parents and grandparents are from Jamaica. And I remember growing up, if something was hurting, you felt unwell, there was some natural remedy that they would want to give you as a result. But, yeah, we were seen as witch doctors. We were seen as lotions and potions. It was seen as all of these negative things. I mean... Now that things like um, the now fancy name that they put on it, aloe vera, we were being told about that to put it on burns and ingest yeah. it, and, you know, topical use, internal use, and for years. But then it was one of those things where we were looked down on and laughed at and things like yeah. that. And now all of these things, and it's, it's they're coming back into society, yeah. now being given fancy names, because the first time I heard of aloe vera, I didn't know what it was. <laughs> because in the West Indies, it's called something very different. Yes. And so, and now we're looking at it, it's just thinking, oh my gosh. And I was saying this to him on um, last Wednesday, that we have come so far away from um, from what's natural and what's good for us because of how we were told that it's um, their old wives tales, and, and the kind of negative stereotypes that were put on natural remedies but now there's so many clinics that are coming up all over the place giving natural holistic medicines and now when we and when we look at it it's just like we've fed ourselves with so much poison as a result And so many of these synthetic drugs and prescription medicines. Now, I'm not telling anybody to come off their medication, but we've been fed so many of these other things when there's so many things in nature that could actually help us and be better for us. And that's actually a conversation I was having just on Wednesday when this man was just trying to really sell me this farm race from a fish. (laughs) Well, you know, and I totally agree with you.
1: I I only, you know, buy, you know, non farm rates of wild fish for the same reason, because there's a lot of other things, not just what they feed them, but it's the bugs that they type that they tend to get in the farms, they tend to get lots of viruses and other things. Um, But you know, when it comes to medication, I mean, I'm a medical doctor. So I'm not anti medication. Mm -hmm. But what I am is. What is going to work the best for the least amount of side effects? So nice. I'm I'm always combining, you know, um, botanical medicines, things like medical cannabis, which I write a prescription for now, with drug therapy. You know, I have patients who need to take drug therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, my, my cancer patients, they're going through chemotherapy, sometimes radiotherapy, and I'm supporting them with all the other integrative stuff so they can get through their therapy, protect their healthy cells as much as possible. That's a perfect example. Um, or, you know, if you have an autoimmune disease, sometimes you need drugs, but sometimes we can reduce the amount of drugs people need dramatically and in some cases some chronic diseases you can reduce the amount of drugs so dramatically and some sometimes even come off a lot of the drugs um, using more of an integrative approach when it's done properly so um, I mean that's why cannabis medicine I find is so beneficial um, so for example if you have chronic pain and you're on opioids and you're on gabapentinoids and not really working for you oftentimes I'll add medical cannabis and a lot of other integrative things in and people can wean down dramatically off of a lot of these medicines. Um, not always all the way, but sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's, you know, finding, using science to find the best of natural yeah. and modern drug therapy, isn't it? And, and just, But rather than just throwing more medications on mm-hmm. at people and, you know, then you, then, you know I have people who come to me and they're on 10 medications. No one's even reviewed their medications for years sometimes and they said well i think i take this one for a side effect of that medication so what is that medication doing anything anymore have we have we checked have we done your biomarkers no no one's really checked i don't really know and then they just end up with so many i I call it we call it we we call it problematic polypharmacy which is a very fancy way of saying too many drugs no one knows what they're doing (laughs)
0: Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad you even raised that and mentioned that because that is so true. Because you take a medication for one thing, and then it causes something else. So then they give you a medication for what this original, this other medication was causing, and then it's just a vicious cycle, isn't it? And so I'm glad that you mentioned that because, again we're not telling anybody come off the medication, but to your point, at least have it reviewed regularly to make sure that, okay, um, do I still need all of these things? And sometimes I think as well, um, we put all of the responsibility the medical doctors and we don't do our own research into what some of these things are and i know it's it's quite funny it's a bit of a running joke when you when you're in the u.s and you hear an advert for medication and at the end of it it may cause and then it gives you and speak so disability (laughs) different things right but at least if we look at it in another respect at least it's letting you know okay you could be prescribed this medication for your eczema, but it could also cause high high blood pressure, diabetes, skin conditions, and all the rest of it. So then it's for you to start to look into say, oh, okay, I took this medication, but now it's causing this. And going back to your doctor to say, I've noticed these other things. So maybe the doctor doesn't add a medication to it, but changes the the medication. And even like you said, sometimes um, look at what scientifically, um, could naturally work for the person because I remember many years ago I rem- I work, went to the doctors and you know as you go in, in the doctor's sitting behind their desk ready for you to sit down and I remember I walked in and he already had his hand over the prescription pad I haven't yeah. even sat down yet and I noticed that and I thought You don't even know what I'm coming in here for, but yet you're poised and you're ready to write the prescription. And so it's also down to us, I think, to take responsibility that if you're going to a doctor and all they're doing is giving you these medications, maybe get a second opinion. Maybe go and seek another doctor that is more willing to, like yourself, integrate natural medicines and remedies and get the best result as opposed to just writing prescriptions and putting and um, feeding them with these prescriptions medicines?
1: Well I, I think one of the issues is you know with the NHS and a lot of public healthcare systems have the same issue not just the NHS um, the people in the NHS are incredible and they're amazing but the system is is quite broken um, and what happens is it's a very fragmented model of care so I tend to see patients who have tried a lot of medications, they've seen every specialist, but every time they get reviewed at a new specialist, it's a very narrow review within that specialty. So for example, you know, let's say you you have chronic pain. Well, people with chronic pain end up with all sorts of other problems. They end up feeling depressed, feeling fatigued, their sleep is disturbed. So they might go see a sleep specialist, um, a chronic pain specialist, a psychiatrist, maybe a rheumatologist, and then all of these different people are focusing on such a narrow sliver. And -hmm. that's often how the medications get added because that one specialist will say, well, for this specialty, my area, I would use this medication to treat the symptom. Then you go to the next specialist. And then when you go back to your NHS GP, you have about five minutes 10 minutes Mm -hmm. and they're not I mean they can't be experts in everything so sometimes they're just a little bit overwhelmed they are afraid to take you off of a medication that a specialist has provided they can't get access to calling like in Canada we can call up a specialist a lot easier but in the NHS here your GP doesn't really have the ability to get on the phone and call a specialist easier so then these medications just get you know like you said piled on top of each other Um, and that unfortunately is the the main form of medicine in in the public system is is more medications mm-hmm. more medications um, rather than looking at you know the the more um, uh, integrated picture so you know I, I do things that the NHS won't pay for at the moment I'm always trying to get these things covered in the NHS for patients and sometimes I'm able to say well why don't we try to get your NHS GP to order this this and this and see if mm-hmm. you can get a pay for it paid for in the NHS but I'll I'll kind of in, help instruct the NHS GP But sometimes they're just not available then it's just people love to do you know a functional stool test or organic acid test or some of the functional tests i do but they just don't have access to it they don't even know how to read it how to interpret it um so that is that is the challenge i think but to your point the more that we can empower everyone to take control over their health earlier on more of a preventative medicine approach with these natural things and the mind body approaches then we'll need people like me less when things fall off
0: the rails mm. and i'm interested how do you get involved in this type of work because i like i mentioned earlier when we were growing up this was illegal, right? So what is it that led you to get involved in cannabinoids and cannabis medicine?
1: Yeah, so wow, I went to medical school in the usual fashion. I became a conventional medicine doctor, but I was always very interested in um, chronic disease management from a very positive viewpoint. I really went into medicine to help people be healthier, to empower people about their health, and then I realized once I was in medical school that actually I wasn't learning much about that. I was learning how to give people more drugs once they were very sick. Um, and I saw that a lot of my the patients with chronic diseases were just not getting better and it was really depressing. So I thought, okay, there must be a better way to do this. So I ended up basically basing my whole career on combining Um, evidence-based natural things. So everything from mindfulness-based meditation to botanicals for sleep, um, helping treat autoimmune disease with drugs on top of things like high-dose curcumin, like all the other things. So I was doing that, you know, I've been doing that since I really graduated almost 15 years ago, but I didn't actually start prescribing cannabis, even though I was using other botanical medicines in my practice until 2015. And that was because I had a lot of bias against the plant. And mm-hmm. that was because I was brainwashed in medical school. Everyone was going to go crazy if you gave if they had cannabis. I was yeah. brainwashed growing up in the States, the war on drugs. Um, so what really pushed the needle for me was I was listening to my patients um who were coming to me. I was doing integrated medicine with them and they were also saying, Dr. Danny, I'm also using cannabis. I started using cannabis, it's really helping me. So I knew there was something there um, and I was helping them from a kind of a harm reduction approach and saying, well, why don't you try this? Why don't you try that from a harm reduction approach? Mm -hmm. But I wasn't actually prescribing it. Um, Yeah. Like I said till 2015 when I had a very bad hand injury, I developed neurological nerve pain in my hand. They said two surgeons from, you know, top schools told me, um, I would need really strong pain medicine for the rest of my life. It wasn't going to go away. My pain was going to get worse. Um, I had two partially successful surgeries, not very successful. And then I started using, um, topical cannabis myself on my hand. Um, and it was incredibly effective for my nerve pain, even locally, topically. And that was the final push to adding it to my practice. And then since then I've treated thousands of patients with medical cannabis. Um, And I guess how I became more involved in the advocacy side and the education side is it's just changed my patients' lives. Like this is not curing anyone of chronic disease, don't get me wrong. But I had patients who couldn't leave the house because they were in so much pain. Um, They were so badly depressed and had so much bad anxiety. They tried every medication and we started on a medical cannabis program. And they just got so much better and then they were able to do all the other things too then we could work with them with uh, a psychologist and i could work with them on the mind body side i could help change their diet but if someone is really really struggling you can't just go to them why don't you start meditating and change your diet Um, it just doesn't work they're so overwhelmed their nervous system is just so overwhelmed that they are just trying to survive every day um and and that's what i found with medical cannabis it's just really effective medicine for so many different things, um, because we have our own cannabinoid system in our bodies and our brains, and that system controls everything from our pain levels, response to trauma, the stress response, our mood, our sleep. So when you add plant cannabinoids into a disrupted endocannabinoid, natural cannabinoid system that we all have, we're all born with this system, um, great things can happen to people.
0: Mm. and one thing i want to ask you because again if we go back to all the the negative things we were told about cannabis can your patients become addicted to it this is a fantastic question
1: so when i teach doctors which i do a lot of these days is you know, I get asked this question pretty much right up front. There's two questions I get asked from doctors, can my patients get addicted? And is it going to cause psychosis? so the first one I'll address first, um, with, with cannabis, the research on the addiction of cannabis comes from recreational use of very high THC, very potent uh, smoked cannabis. So Mm -hmm. if you were smoking recreational high THC, usually from the black market cannabis every day, there's about an 8.9% chance over your lifetime of you becoming addicted to that cannabis. That is much lower than the risk of, um, alcohol, um, much lower than the risk of cocaine, other, many other recreational substances, um, alcohol being the most interesting one since it's legal and everyone drinks pretty mm. much in the UK to some extent. Um, but the, the rates for medical cannabis are probably more below Um, 1%. So I've over thousands of patients, I've never had a patient get addicted to my medical cannabis, I prescribe them. The reason why is because with medical cannabis, we're using lower THC, lower dosage, and we're actually using it under medical guidance. So I'm not, uh, you know, you can't smoke medical cannabis anyways, because it's not a legal form. But when I'm giving it to people in long acting forms, sometimes in a vaporized form that they use a medical vaporizer for and very specific um, types of cannabis, very specific dosages. Um, and it's actually quite a safe medication when it's used properly. And of course, you know, you screen your patients appropriately, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, I've had patients who have substance use disorders, um, uh, you know, active um, you know addiction issues, and they have terrible chronic pain. And they're on high doses of opioids. So, you know, how do you help these patients? They're already on really addictive medications. They have an active um, addiction problem that they're seeking treatment for. So we can still very cautiously use medical cannabis in those patients, but we just have to be very cautious. And what I have found in those cases when I have done it, and, you know, you, you do it with myself and my, my team of specialists that work with me, we all meet with these, these cases and these patients really, really uh, regularly. Is that they do really well and that they are able to wean down off of some of those other more addictive medications they stop drinking as much because their pain is better controlled their ptsd Mm -hmm. is getting better so again in a medical context i think the risk of addiction is very low when it's done properly that is the key but when it's not done you know properly or when people are using it on their own very high thc there is a potential for addiction
0: uh, that's interesting. interesting. Thank you so much. And I'm glad yeah. that you also mentioned that the those other opioid medications, because we've heard, whether it be um, on the news or even yeah. in the movies, about people getting addicted to prescription drugs. So when we're looking at it, whether it's a prescription drug or, as you mentioned, on the black market, drugs can actually be quite quite addictive regardless of where you get it from because I remember um I was in hospital and I was in a lot of pain and they gave me morphine and I remember that feeling that came as a result and I thought about afterwards I thought I can understand why people get addicted to this because they want this feeling this is the feeling that people are chasing for because I wasn't in any pain and I just felt good good
1: yeah exactly and that's why opioids are so addictive Mm -hmm. and they're so problematic in chronic pain because they work less well in chronic pain they're they're lifesavers for acute pain you know i had i i have a a toddler i had a c-section when i had my son i mean thank thank goodness for morphine after you have a major surgery let me tell you um and same with um you know, same with when I had my hand injuries and in my surgeries there, but in chronic pain, they don't work that well, but people can still get that initial nice feeling. But then over time, they work less and less well for the pain, but they get more and more potential for addiction. Um, and then they actually start to cause mood problems in the longer term in a lot of people. So I have a lot of patients who's, depression starts to really lift once we add cannabinoid medicines and we taper um, once they're stable we taper down on their opioids their their mood just just rebounds so so beautifully um, because the opioids have been really um, depressing the mood
0: wow that's 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 actually quite interesting who and who would have thought it especially like if we go back to as we mentioned all that we were taught and told about the effects of um, using cannabis and how addictive it is. And as I mentioned earlier, there was, there was always been said it's, yes, it's the gateway to using harder drugs, but the reality is it, is it? Um, no, so that's that's
1: been another thing that's been disproven. So there's actually never been any research study that has proven uh, that cannabis is a gateway drug to, to other drugs of abuse. So that's actually been very well disproven now. Um, the other thing when it comes to the other risk of cannabis is you know causing someone to become psychotic, a psych- psychosis where they have a break from reality. Um, there's actually never been any study that, that is, has proved that cannabis um, causes schizophrenia or causes a chronic psychotic disorder. But in someone who's really genetically vulnerable, mm. it might unmask an episode of schizophrenia earlier, for example, or you can have a drug-induced psychosis, and it's it's rare, but it happens. But usually not with medical cannabis. I've never seen it happen in my practice with medical cannabis. Um, but it's 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 one of those things that the media takes and kind of twists, if you know what I mean. As they do
0: with most things. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, they do. We can't expect it, right? And yeah. so that's, again, you raise some interesting points about the psychosis and um, it being disproven because, again, I remember the days when I used to, I, I, you know, I was that person. I used to party very, very hard. And in the days when smoking was allowed in the nightclubs. And, yeah. yes, I know people that used to smoke um cannabis and but I've never seen any kind of psychotic um episodes um them experiencing any psychotic episodes I've never experienced any of them to my knowledge going on to any harder drugs like um cocaine and heroin or anything like that so it's interesting that now it's being disproven and it just makes you wonder like where did it all even come from to start with and it got so out of control yeah, and I mean, with the psychosis, you
1: can have a drug-induced psychotic episode from very high THC cannabis in someone who's, you know, vulnerable to it. So, mm-hmm. let's say, you know, you had a parent who had schizophrenia, for example, or something like this, but it's rare. And it what's been what has not been proven is that cannabis causes chronic psychotic disorders like schizophrenia for a long time people were saying you know even in medical school oh you know if if you smoke cannabis it's going to increase your chance of developing schizophrenia that's that's actually not ever been proven there's associations and in fact people who suffer from chronic schizophrenia a lot of them use cannabis to medicate their some of their effects of the disease and some of the medication side effects they experience and sometimes it's not good for them but sometimes actually it might make them feel a bit better. So it's a really complicated area. Cannabis and psychosis, really, really complicated area. Um, but certainly it's it's been, the risk has been blown out of proportion in the media and actually even in the medical community.
0: That's interesting because um,
1: yeah,
0: as you mentioned, it, it's, if you're already susceptible to it, and I do know of one instance where somebody did have an episode but it's because some unknown to them somebody actually laced they were they were rolling a joint or spliff whatever is wherever you are in the world or whatever you call it so they and the friend actually laced it with lsd yeah and that which caused his psychosis as opposed to that yeah. that he was smoking weed so as you say that i have heard and i and i and i know the person so and I, so i do know that that has happened but it wasn't as yeah. a direct result of him smoking cannabis it was as a direct of, result of a so called friend lacing it with lsd and he didn't even know and that was the result and he had a bad um psychotic episode as a result. So yes, yeah, so as to your point, I it can happen, but it's very rare. And I'm and I'm glad there are studies yeah. like this that's actually disproven it. And well so there's the- there's no studies that have disproven it. So
1: so what happens with research is you know you you, you can have association studies. So okay. there is an association between um for example high risk groups who use a lot of cannabis mm-hmm. and um and those groups you know risk of developing certain certain uh, disorders or having a psychotic episode but there's so many factors at play that there's no research proving that cannabis has caused mm. those um those, that cause co- that, that there's no research proving that cannabis cannabis causes schizophrenia um however for example, if I have a high-risk patient who has, you know, a parent with schizophrenia and we're thinking about using cannabis medicines, we'll be very cautious and we wouldn't use anything with THC, for example, for that patient. Um, so we're still cautious. We have to be cautious. Mm-hmm. But the, the you know, what we were told even in medical school and what um, a lot of the media says that cannabis causes schizophrenia that has not ever been proven. It's it's probably not the case based mm-hmm. on many, many studies um, that look at things and look at risks for, for different diseases in different ways. Ooh, thank
0: yeah. you. Thank you for clarifying and clearing that yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I want to touch on, because um, I was reading through your website and it says that your practice deals with specific women's health issues like endometriosis, easing perimenopause symptoms, when drugs just alone on their their own don't work. And can you explain to me, because I'm sure a lot of us have heard of endometriosis, but it's a big word that many probably don't know. What is endometriosis really?
1: So endometriosis is a very painful chronic condition when the lining of the womb um, grows outside of the womb where it should not be. And when we bleed each month, um, the womb lining, of course, that's when we have our period. But when we bleed and the lining of the womb is outside where it should be, you can get bleeding in different areas like in um, in the gut, in the abdomen, even in the compartments um, in like near the big in the pelvis basically in the pelvic compartments and it can cause pain ranging from um, it can cause symptoms ranging from diarrhea and gut issues to pain radiating down the legs it can cause all sorts of problems um, sometimes it can cause fertility problems and it's a very painful condition that's difficult to treat. So um, sometimes we will use medical cannabis as one of the medications um, to treat endometriosis. It's not a cure, but it can be a very effective pain treatment. And then my approach to endometriosis is, you know, we use an integrative approach again. We look at hormones, we look at um, hormone-balancing diets. We look at other integrative things we might be able to add, again, not as a magic cure, but to control and alleviate um, the symptoms and hopefully um, you know, prevent the the disease from progressing further um, and just really improve the
0: quality of life. Thank you. Um, Because years ago, I was diagnosed with adenomyosis. Yeah. I tried acupuncture as an alternative. Um, My acupuncturist, she was great because she looked at it and she looked at, okay, what are you eating? Because yeah. what's causing inflammation in your body and so on and so forth, something my gynecologist never did, because um, unfortunately, I ended up having a hysterectomy as the options that were given to me. So he says, so for years and years, I was going to the doctors. I'm just like, OK, something's wrong. Something's wrong. And they kept saying, yes, yeah, something is wrong. We just don't know what it is, because they kept looking for fibroids. And yeah.
1: Because and
0: it was in that, the, the lining Right. So because they never found fibroids, it just kept saying, "Okay, yes, we know that something's wrong, but we just don't know what it is and we can't. So I went from one doctor to another and I ended up, I even remember saving up some money and going to Harley Street. (laughs) Because I wanted to see it because I was just like, "Okay, I'm not crazy because they are saying something's wrong, but they can't find what it is. And so I remember I, I moved to the US and as a result, because there would be times when, like my period I'd be end up in hospital and they'd they'd think I was having a miscarriage I'm like nope this is just normal and they say oh well this is what we call flooding like that really doesn't help but thank you though (laughs) and so they said that uh, my cramps were the equivalent of me being in labor every month and the flow was the equivalent of me having a miscarriage every month because it was that bad and so and like I said for years and years and years Nobody could ever find what the root cause of this was. So I moved to the US and a girlfriend of mine, she lives out here now, but she's originally from England. She says, Demand a laparoscopy. I'm like, okay, I'll do that. Went to my gynecologist, demanded a laparoscopy. Like, well, why do you want that? And I'm thinking, because I do. Just, you know, my insurance is paying for this. It's not like the NHS where the practice has to pay for it. I'm in the US now. My insurance is paying for this. I'm kind of paying for this. So, and I sorry, I remember I said to him, because I'm tired of this thing putting me in the hospital on a regular basis. Yeah, exactly. So, it's completely disruptive to your life. Yeah. So that's so why. I so I said that to him. And he begrudgingly agreed and did it. So after he did it, he was feeling a little bit smug, almost as though it was his idea. And I'm like, dude, really? Oh, okay. That's what we're doing now. But um, and he says, says you have what's known as adenomyosis. So I asked, what's that? And I think if my memory serves me right, I don't even think he explained it to me. I ended up looking it up myself. Yeah. And he says, well, you have two options. I'm like, oh, okay. I have options. He breathed that sigh of relief. And then he says, your options are you either have to learn to live with it or have a hysterectomy. So yeah. it's like, okay, so no options really then. None. So there were no treatments he offered, no medications he offered, nothing. That's literally all he said to me and then sent yeah. me on my way. And so, again, I started looking into it myself to see what can be done, what would be best, and hence um, coming across acupuncture. And admittedly, for a while, it the acupuncture really, really did work for me. But then, unfortunately, it's almost one of those things that as my body got used to something, then everything kind of just reset itself and went back to what it was. So I give you that very long-winded story to, to ask, Do you think in your medical opinion that um, your your practice could have helped me or could help somebody with adenomyosis? I think
1: certainly, you know, an integrative approach to women's health is very helpful. I mean, there's no guarantees. I mean, some women do end up having a surgery. Um, now they're able to do surgeries so they don't have to remove the whole womb. In many cases, they can do um, different things depending on where the, the problem is and what layer of the womb and that sort of thing. Um, so I'm certainly not saying, you know, I'd be able to save everyone from surgery ever because it really depends on the individual case. But in a lot of cases, yes, because that's often why patients are coming to me. They have decided they do not want a hysterectomy. And if we can manage them medically, it can leave their reproductive um, system in, you know, intact. Um, Then it's, it's life-changing for a lot of women. So I I have had those cases too, where um, we've been able to do that. So using things like, yeah, medical cannabis for pain, um, getting the iron levels back up, because when you have really heavy cycles, you lose so much iron, And then what happens is the vicious circle because you don't have the iron to, um, to help kind of bind everything anymore. And then you, you get heavier and heavier and heavier Mm -hmm. and then optimizing the thyroid hormones as well. So when you have to optimize the stress axis, the thyroid axis, and then the ovarian axis, um, with different integrative strategies, and sometimes it's botanical, sometimes some, there is sometimes it's medication, it's usually a combination to be honest. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, you can usually get, really good symptom control for for a lot of people so avoiding that that last ditch option which is yeah having to have a full hysterectomy and that was a lot more common um 10-15 years ago i think even than it is now especially with integrated medicine Uh, in the states actually integrated medicine is becoming more and more popular in the uk i'm still one of the only ones
0: but there's a few of us Mm so it's um interesting that you said that because in my mind i'm just thinking if I knew back then what I know now, right? Because after the diagnosis, I think I went about three or four years seeking other alternatives because I didn't want to have the surgery. And um, like I said, I went to acupuncture, changed. And part of it was my fault because some of the things I had to cut out, I'm like, but I don't want to. I love that food. (laughs) But she... um, was explaining what the effects of those foods was doing to my body and how it was contributing to the condition. So again, going back to, yes, we also need to take responsibility for our own health and well-being. And um, so that would have been interesting. And like I said, I wish I knew about this then, <laughs> because I may not have needed to have the surgery. But hopefully, by us having this conversation, other women out there will hear this and will learn something. And may Absolutely. say, okay, I've tried everything else. I because honestly, like I said, for years I went to doctor after doctor. I yeah, like yeah. I said, I went to Harley Street. I went to they're really nice other hospital, Chelsea and Westminster. I went to Hammers. I went everywhere around yeah. London. I mean, and even when I came here to the US, I, I um I think I saw about three or four different doctors yeah, as yeah, well, yeah. just trying to find out what was causing this. Because as you were saying about your iron levels, I ended up having to have two blood transfusions.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and iron, and sometimes it's just when it's a more mild case, but it's still really affecting women. Sometimes if we optimize their thyroid, um, doing an iron infusion, like an IV iron infusion, and then giving them a simple medication it's, its actually a very safe, old medication that's very cheap called transexamic acid to help the heavy flow. Those yeah, three I things alone. I had that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so sometimes if you're really, really, if it's really severe, that's not enough. But for a lot of people, actually in the moderate category, that's actually enough to get them kind of over the hump, and then then you can start with the diet then you can start with the other thing to kind of get them like back on the road to to more to more balance but but everyone is different and who knows if, if you would have had someone do that approach with you 10 years ago when you you know know about that approach who knows what would have happened but um you know we see this a lot in in in, in conventional medicine that there's a lot of really drastic things that are um people end up with the most drastic meaning the most drastic mm-hmm. thing because um they're they're really sick by the time that they have to make a choice
0: yes and I it was as yes. um it was just a couple of days after the second blood transfusion that I says you know something yeah. I'm gonna have to do this because yeah yes. the second one was less than a year after the first one yeah that transfusion and I just thought I can't continue. Um, doing this and putting my body through this and who knows how often are they going to send me to have blood transfusions because this isn't sustainable I can't keep this up so it it was really as a result of that why I made the decision about three four years after the diagnosis to have the surgery because (laughs) I couldn't basically i just couldn't cope with the pain levels anymore on top of it and i wasn't able to eat for the first couple of days constantly being sick and it was just an absolute entire mess oh
1: it's terrible and i find that's what the cannabinoid medicines can really help with is um the pain and the the problems of eating um so appetite pain very effective so yeah, if it's, you know, I, I know this has gotten a bit of a, a tangent, but you know, it, these are really important women's health problems. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's that side. that of course I treat a lot of perimenopause symptoms where I use body identical hormones, HRT, but body identical, not the synthetic ones. Mm-hmm. And I combine it with, with cannabis, medical cannabis, and it's a very effective combination for a lot of women. Um, and then someone we can't take even body identical HRT, it depends on the person, most people can, but some people can't, if they have a really strong family history of breast cancer um, and they have a certain gene for breast cancer, you know, you might want, not want to give it that sort of thing. Um, then we can still use the the cannabis medicines and the integrated medicine to really help them through that transition. Um, because that's the other really big women's health um, area that's very poorly done and it can you know a lot of my patients say i felt like an alien is taking over my brain because they're you know they're not sleeping they feel irritable they the 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 drop in estrogen causes a lot of brain fog and cognitive disturbance as well because it affects the memory centers so it's not that we're being crazy, it's actually our brains are changing because our hormone levels are changing. So um, when you explain this to women, they actually feel relieved and then they're like, why didn't my GP ever bring this up? And then, you know, when you get them on, sometimes they've been on synthetic HRT and they've had lots of side effects. So you take them off that, you put them on body identical and add some medical cannabis um, in many cases. And it's it's really life-changing.
0: Mm, it is. And I'm glad you mentioned perimenopause because that was my next question. It's like, okay, so it's a bit like, I know, um, sorry, endometriosis. We've heard of the word and we've heard of menopause, but what is perimenopause?
1: Yeah, so perimenopause is when you're still, so you haven't hit menopause in until you've not had a period for 12 months time. So if you've had a period in the last 12 months, um, then you're still in this perimenopause, which means the the transition has started um, towards menopause where you no longer ovulate or release an egg, um, but the hormones are going up and down. And actually this this period, that's the worst symptoms because the hormone levels are fluctuating so erratically. So you have estrogen coming back down, Um, estrogen when it when it's nice and high Mm -hmm. excuse me pre-menopause you know um, when we're younger it helps buffer us against stress in the brain it helps um, with our metabolism so this is why you can have the same diet the same exercise pattern and sadly in perimenopause people start to gain weight and it's so frustrating because they're like literally I'm still doing the same exercise I'm eating the same things as I always have but so yeah so it affects the metabolism so weight, it affects, um, and then it affects memory, cognition. So how you can think and learn and feel mentally sharp affects the mood. Um, and then you have other things like progesterone levels, which is the other major hormone involved. Um, and sometimes when people go on HRT, the conventional, like the really um, kind of older conventional kind, mm-hmm. um, with the synthetic progesterone, they get better in some symptoms because the estrogen is helping them from the HRT, but the progesterone is a synthetic progestin and some women have side effects from that synthetic progestin. I find um, natural progesterone works better with less side effects. So it's just kind of knowing those nuances and then working with with each woman. Each woman's a bit different. Some people need help with sleep. Some people are more irritable. Everyone responds differently when the hormones start to change. and then, so after you kind of go through that period and you finally have hit menopause, you're no longer cycling, you're no longer bleeding. Um, sometimes women still continue to have these symptoms. Like I had a patient the other day who's 60 and she, we decided, you know, to, to start HRT. And usually, you know, you don't start HRT. We used to not start HRT in older women, but now we just weigh the risk, weigh the benefit, Um, low dose body identical HRT and Mm -hmm. some medical cannabis. It was three months later, she felt completely like a new person um, Mm -hmm. because she was still having a lot of those symptoms. um, A lot of the cognitive symptoms, um, a lot of the sleep disturbance feeling more irritable. She said she just never really felt the same after she went through menopause.
0: Gosh, that's that's interesting because there's just so many things we don't know because we hear yeah. of menopause and we just think, and, and, and I think men and women, we just think, oh, it just means you don't have a period anymore. And yeah. that's it, woohoo, liberated, we, we no longer have that monthly cycle and we can just move on and just live these nice, easygoing lives, but we don't realise there are other things, the hormonal changes, what it does to you mentally, physically even. Because yeah. I was interested, I was watching um an interview with um what's her name, the actress Selma Hayek. And she was talking about when she went through menopause and how it changed her body. And but the way she was just so open and transparent about it made me think, yeah. you know something, there's so much that we just don't know about even our own selves and how things affect us. So I'm just really grateful that you were able to shed some light on that. <laughs> <All right. laughs> of course. So Mike, I'd like to ask you, so you use CPD to help create mental well-being and balance. And I think you may have touched on it a bit, but you also treat insomnia and anxiety so how does CBD, CBD, sorry, help with those things?
1: So CBD is the most most prevalent um, chemical in the cannabis plant. So it's, it's one of the cannabinoids. So you can buy it over the counter, you can buy hemp CBD. Um, I, in the medical clinic, I use medical cannabis, which has a little bit more THC. So it's not mm-hmm. the same as what you can buy in Holland and Barrett. Um, but even over the counter CBD, um, for mild stress issues, a lot of people do find it that, that does help them. Mm-hmm. Um, so CBD and THC, the cannabinoids act on a system that we all have that we mentioned earlier called the endocannabinoid system. So when this system gets out of balance, it can affect things like anxiety levels, worsen stress, chronic stress, um, and disturb sleep. So sometimes CBD, a lot of people have tried hemp CBD, for example, from you know the high street for sleep. It's often not very effective because um, if you have if you have a you know a, a bad enough sleep issue that you're coming to see me coming to see a doctor, it means you probably need actually some a little bit of THC in a very small dose because THC is actually more the sleep promoting chemical, but not on its own. It's mm-hmm. also the strain, the cultivar that you're using of the cannabis plant. Every strain of the plant has different properties, so if you use the wrong strain. Even with the same amount of CBD and THC, you can actually feel feel more wakeful sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's really an art in in using uh, the right product for the right the right symptoms. So these uh, compounds, these plant compounds, act in the receptors in our endocannabinoid system to help with these different areas um, to help with the homeostasis or the balancing aspect. And that's why they can do so many things, and they're not a snake oil. It's because the endocannabinoid system is involved in so many of these um, really critical things in the brain and also in our body organs including the womb for example.
0: And is that the same because your practice also treats and toxic stress burnout so would the same principles apply?
1: Yeah exactly so every case is different so what what I would be using for one person might be different than the next person Mm -hmm. but using cannabinoid therapy can help with a lot of these different areas and then What we, what I find is, and this is, you know, what I found over doing this for, I guess, almost, you know, 15 years now is um, when you start to use uh, the right thing at the right time, people get better, faster. Sometimes people go might go to an integrative practitioner or a nutritionist and very well, meaningly, they just want to do everything at once. You know, Mm. you get thousands of pounds worth of functional medicine tests and you have to change everything in your diet. You can't eat anything overnight. And What I find is that doesn't work very well because it's very overwhelming and you don't know what's working and what's not. And some of that stuff might not not even be necessary. So my approach is actually, we use cannabinoid medicines early on to get people a quick win, to reduce their symptoms, make them feel calmer, um, reduce their pain, reduce their insomnia, get them sleeping better, reduce anxiety, lift the mood, um, reduce the fatigue. And then we can start working on the deeper level with the integrative tools, using functional medicine, working on the brain-gut axis, um, Mm -hmm. doing kinds of fancier things if we need to. Sometimes we don't need to because people start to feel better and then they're able to start engaging in more of those health, um, kind of promoting behaviors and activities that they naturally just start kind of, they tipped over into the balance side of the equation um, and they start getting better kind of almost on their own with a little bit of help from the cannabinoids. Um, so that's, that's really the approach.
0: And so, so, and a lot of it I'm taking is like, Mm -hmm. and also allowing your, your body to do some of the self-healing work as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. Getting, you know, self-healing is, 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 um, it's a real thing, but you have to have the tools. You have to have, I think the, the guidance for how to, how to instruct the body. Um, so it's using things like mind-body practices, really simple mind-body practices tapping into what's called our relaxation response, helping someone. My job is to help someone find a practice that's going to suit them. That's going to be beneficial for them and simple for them to start. And then we can start adding more, um, you know, fancier things on top if we need them. So yeah, it's, it's really once, um, once the cannabinoid medicines start to help people feel less stressed and less anxious and less painful, then their nervous system is not so jacked up on stress, and then they can start to engage in some of those relaxation response techniques that we we work on. But if I just see someone and tell someone, oh, go meditate, go do some more exercise, that's not gonna work, (laughs) you know? And when they tune into their body, when they're really out of balance, all they feel is pain. Mm
0: -hmm. So
1: we have to kind of get through that layer and kind of calm those symptoms down, so then they can learn and tap into their own inner ability to, to heal and to rebalance.
0: Mm, that's yeah that's, that's very interesting thank you and with yeah. that in mind, can you <clears throat> excuse me can you share how um how do you create a um, is it to, um from your website i saw like how do you create a cycle friendly wellness plan and based on what is needed for, for the day the different phases of the menstrual cycle with what to eat supplements and exercises but i'm but Outside of the menstrual cycle, because I'm sure this isn't just aimed and geared towards women, what can people in general, a cycle friendly wellness plan, what are some of the things that and tips that you can give to people that can actually help start people on the journey on that process to healing, taking care of themselves, taking better care of themselves?
1: Yeah, so I think if, if it's still on the wellness side of things we're speaking of, just, you know, some, some general stress, you know, it's not reached a clinical level of, of any issue. Um, one of the easiest things is to say no and do less, especially under times of stress. And I think this is really um, a good opportunity at this time of year to say this because the holidays are coming up. And they can be really enjoyable, but they can also be very stressful for a lot of people, for most of us, I think, um, because we're doing a lot. So sometimes it's just about doing less and just checking in with your energy levels, your stress levels. Um, that's the easiest thing. And it's free. and It's very simple. The second thing is what I call finding your, um, your stress signature. So every one of us has a stress signature it can come up in different ways for different people. Some people, for example, mine is I get tension in my neck and my shoulders first. Then if I don't pay attention, I start feeling it in my rib cage and my breathing pattern will change during the day. So I just do a one minute mini meditation a few times a day and I check in with that stress signature and just do a really simple relaxation breathing exercise a few times a day, one minute, just to reset those stress that stress circuitry so by the end of the day, I'm not feeling really fatigued and really frazzled. Um, And I think that's really important. Obviously for me as a doctor, because I'm healing other people, I have to really take care of myself, but it doesn't matter what profession you're in. It's, it, or if you're if you're a mom and you, you're like a full-time mom, it's really, or you know, a full-time dad, it's really important. Um, And then I think the third thing is sleep. So really prioritizing your sleep. Um, It's not just the amount of hours we spend in bed but it's what we do before we go to bed it's Mm -hmm. taking a caffeine holiday which is really i know a hard thing to do but try to do a caffeine holiday for a month see how you feel it might revolutionize your sleep it does for a lot of my patients and it's again it's a free things we can do they're not easy but they're free um and they're not they're not drug-based so caffeine holiday going to bed earlier getting off screens two hours before bed if you can if you can't getting some blue blocking glasses that are really that orange, that dark orange color when you're watching TV. Um, That's not a license to watch TV right until bedtime, but it helps. Um, These are things that can all help reset our natural Mm -hmm. cycles, our natural 24 hour cycles that we all have. We all have clock genes. We all have hormones that reset every 24 hours. So these are ways that we can help support our um, our natural kind of balancing systems.
0: Thank you. And these are all things, as you said, that they're not drug based or related. They're just things that anybody can do, because you also mentioned about you tackle mum guilt and burnout. And so those just doing those simple things can actually um, put you on the road to tackling those things by yourself without having to get to that chronic stage where you need a doctor and medication. Is that correct?
1: That's that's absolutely correct. It's catching these things when they're niggles rather than when they're really big problems. And, you know, the people I see have, have, have suffered for a long time and they've become big problems.
0: And I think part of it, again, is the going back to going back full circle to how we even started the conversation. A lot of it is the pressure that's on us is really some of it is what society puts on us that you have to work around the clock. You have to work, 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 work. You have to hustle, you have to get things done without people stopping to take the time to say, okay, but if I'm burnt out and I'm a frazzled shell, I'm really no any good to myself or anybody else, really, am I? That's right. That's right. Taking care of your rest is number one. Thank you. So uh, Dr. Gordon What's next for you? Are you any books, any speaking engagements? What What's next on the cards for you?
1: Well, I'm usually doing at least a few speaking engagements every month. Um, so always, always doing something more in London at the moment where I'm based for the next few months. Um, just seeing my patients in my clinic and my new book uh, called The Resilience Blueprint, all about resilience. What we've been talking about, basically, um, is coming out in
0: April. Oh, excellent. So the Resilience Blueprint, your book coming out in April.
1: Yes, that's my second one. My first one came out a few years ago. That's about CBD and cannabis medicine. So that one's out currently. Um, but yes, now the new one will be out in in April.
0: So your book, can people buy it
1: from Amazon? They can. They can buy it in, um, in the US. It's on Amazon. Um, I believe it's in bookstores as well because I do have a US publisher and for the UK it's on Amazon and in most UK book bookstores and
0: I'm presuming your next book's going to follow suit it would be available in Amazon yes excellent exactly. so we, we will definitely look out for that and where can Thank people you. find you Dr. Gordon
1: you can find me at resilience.clinic Um so just literally www.resilience.clinic so if you're in the US, um, I, you cannot become a UK patient or you don't need me. Um, I just have lots of free tools and resources and I have resilience assessments and plans that are free and you can take. Um, and there's also a link to my UK clinic for patients who are interested.
0: Excellent, thank you so much for sharing with us. And one last thing, I'm sorry, I meant to ask you this earlier. Can you please repeat the name of that movie? I think you said it's on YouTube now. Yes, reefer madness. Reefer madness. Okay, yeah, it'll be
1: clips from the really old movie, but yeah, it's it's eye opening.
0: <laughs> yeah, because I definitely want to find it and watch it because I didn't know about that movie, and I'm all for educating myself a bit further. So I definitely going to look at, it, and I encourage our listeners to do the same always do your own research always look into things because one thing that we've learned over the years you can't just take and digest everything that you're being told and given because a lot of it is being disproved years down the line and we're finding out that some of them are just theories and conspiracies and just things that were put in place to bury the truth and project and propagate propaganda really So, Dr. Gordon, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed speaking to you and learning more um, because I'm one of those people that have to unlearn all of the negative connotations that there is surrounding cannabis because, as I mentioned, I am from that generation where it's like, you're smoking weed, you're a drug addict, you're a drug dealer kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a lot of us that now have to dispel a lot of what we learned and educate ourselves differently and better and people like yourself are helping us do that so thank you so much you're very welcome nice to speak to
1: you, Ali. thank you so much take care dr gordon you too take Thanks. care now bye-bye Bye.
0: thank you for spending time with us we're already looking forward to the next episode of this is conversations with allison jay the journey to here until next time honor respect and blessings to you all if you want to connect, visit allisonj.net. That's alisonjay enet Allison with one L, as she is the one and only